our, part of our goal is to do something that's good for American workers and the American nation and the American community, if, if you like. And we should be bashful about that. Hello and welcome. I am Oren Cass, Executive Director at American Compass, and this is the very first episode of the cleverly named American Compass podcast. On August 5th, I had the privilege of hosting a live conversation with Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri for the launch of American Compass's project on corporate actual responsibility, which is a topic on which Senator Hawley has been an outspoken leader. Please enjoy the episode and check out more of our work at AmericanCompass.org. incredibly honored to have Senator Josh Hawley here with us. Obviously, Senator Hawley needs no introduction. He has been uh, making an incredible mark in, in what has been a fairly short time in Washington, hard to believe, uh, on, on holding corporations accountable for their rhetoric and, and for the obligations that, that they really do have to workers, to their, their families and communities, and to the nation. And so, uh, as we kick off our own corporate responsibility project, uh, what we're calling corporate actual responsibility at American Compass. We were really excited to uh, talk with Senator Hawley about his work. So Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to start with a, a, a broad question just about uh, you know, how the right of center has, has typically thought about these issues. I think the, the standard dogma is that the uh, the, the role of the corporation is to maximize profit, that with that will come consumer welfare and government's job is, is pretty much to get out of the way. And I, I was curious to, to get your thoughts on which parts of that you think are, are still basically right versus which parts we, we probably need to look at a little bit harder. Well, I mean, listen, I, I'm all for companies uh, making profits. I mean, that's, that's perfectly fine. But uh, we've never said in any circumstance that making profits, no matter how, no matter what, is acceptable. And in fact, we, we often, and we do, we structure markets. I mean, let's remember that, that markets are not self-creating things. Markets are the products of laws and legal frameworks. And you've got to have property rights for a market to exist. You've got to have a, an approved and standardized system of exchange between those property rights, for those property rights, in order for markets to exist. And we have long thought in, in this country, and I think it has been much our boast to think, uh, that the way we structure those markets matter. And so, for instance, we don't allow child labor in this country, and that's exactly right. And we look out for worker safety in this country. And those, I think, are commitments uh, that uh, we were right to make historically. And I, I think we need to think in the present age, when increasingly our economy is dominated by a handful of monopolistic or near monopolistic multinational corporations, we need to think about how do we continue to enact sensible reforms that will actually be good for American workers, good for American neighborhoods, American families, American producers, and of course, American consumers. So there's a lot to do here uh, in, in our present set of circumstances. Uh, but uh, I think we've got to get to a place where absolutely we want people to go out and, and, and start a business. They want to do that. We want people to, to try and make that business successful. But uh, we've, got to, we've got to structure the market in such a way that instant by so doing uh, that we actually are investing in and working for the good of all of us in the country. And uh, I, I think that that is something that's very achievable. And it's much in our tradition, I might say. Yeah, the, the tradition is a really important point. You know, I think there's at least a sense that historically business leaders did feel more of an obligation to 
think about their workers, communities, and, and the nation for that matter. Uh, and, and you've certainly spent a lot of time talking, partly interrogating, but also talking with uh, business leaders. Where do, you, where do you see them coming down? Do they not acknowledge that they have these obligations? Do they feel like they, they can't fulfill them? Or, or do they think that they're, that they're doing a good job? Well, I think it really depends on the leader in question. You know, if you, if you go back to, to Missouri, my home state, and you talk to folks who have local businesses there, then they feel that, that being part of their community, their town, their neighborhood is really, really important. And a lot of times they have a face-to-face -face relationship with their customers. I mean, they know who their customers are, whether it's a local grocery store, uh, whether it's a local hardware store, whether it's a little bit bigger regional business, but that serves the state and the region. I mean, they, they feel like they belong in that community. And there's a real rootedness to that. And so when they think about making good products and providing good service, it's not just in the abstract, it's to the people that they know. And it's to benefit the community in which they live and that they serve. And there's something I think that's, that's really wonderful about that. Now, if you're talking though about these huge multinational corporations like say Facebook, uh, then I, you know, there I think the attitude is different. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're thinking about uh, global profits. Uh, they tend to think of their, of their customers in the abstract, and they don't see themselves as American companies. I think that's very, very clear. I mean, you just had the tech, uh, I was about to say overlords, is that not nice? The tech titans who were just up before Congress uh, on the House side a couple of days ago, uh, earlier this week, and you listen to them uh, talk about their business and, and how they see themselves, they don't, I mean, they're located in the United States, but they consider themselves global corporations, you know, and serving a global audience. And the problem with that is, is that, listen, I mean, it's fine if you want to compete globally, but it tends towards these abstractions where pretty soon they, they're taking steps that are actually bad for American workers and American consumers. And they do it in the name of their, of their global aspirations and commitments. So, I, I think that's where in the present environment and, and our present uh, uh, mode of, of uh, multi, uh, multinational global capitalism, we've got some tough questions to think through. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, it's a shift also that, that is something we're trying to point to a lot in our project, that, that one way the world is different is that all of our assumptions about how well markets were going to work were, were really based back in Adam Smith's time on an assumption that the business leaders were folks like like the people you described in Missouri. You know, Adam Smith had no conception of, of the multinational corporation. And so, you know, obviously that, that genie is out of the bottle. We're, we're not going to run mom and pop Facebooks in every town. Um, but, but do you see a path toward actually kind of per persuading business leaders to, to think differently? Or, or do you see particular kind of concrete changes you'd like to be making at the policy level that that would that would force their attention back where it needs to be. Well, I think we do. We've got to keep in mind, I think, that when it, it comes to sort of our economic policy overall, so just focusing in on, on policy here, uh, that our, part of our goal or our main goal, excuse me, <clears throat> is to do something that's good for American workers in the American nation and the American community, if, if you like. And we should be bashful about that. I mean, that, that, that ought to be the goal of our American economic policy. I mean, I'm, I'm happy if, if uh, American companies also been a people, other people in the world. I certainly think that they shouldn't be, for instance, using slave labor in other places in the world. And we can maybe talk more about that. But I think that we shouldn't be shy about saying, listen, 
we want our economy to work well for Americans, both as producers and as consumers. And one of the ways I think we can do that is when we talk about our supply chains, uh, particularly in critical areas, pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical products. Uh, this is, of course, much on everyone's mind because of the COVID crisis. You know, we've got to, to take serious steps on the policy level to bring some of those supply chains back to the United States. And there's a, way, a number of ways, a number of different tools we can use to do that. One of them is just to actually enact requirements about uh, uh, manufacturing uh, inputs so that a certain percentage has to be done in the United States. I think that that is really a tool worth considering among others. And so there are very, my point, I guess, Orrin, is this, that there are various tools, policy tools that we have at our disposal to think about structuring the market environment in a way that benefits American workers and that benefits American consumers. I think that ought to, we shouldn't be shy about doing that and pursuing that as a goal. Yeah, the, the point about, about just requiring domestic manufacturing is, is a really interesting one and, and one that we've done some work on um, because on, on the one hand, you know, it, it, that sounds like kind of the most oppressive, invasive move you could make. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's actually quite simple and limited. You're, you're making a very straightforward rule. You have to make it here. And, and then within that, you're saying, by all means, let, let the market flourish. Let's, let's see all that innovative power and profit motive now actually focused on what we want, which is the, the American uh, jobs and, and, and the outcome in the American economy. Uh, you, you alluded to China, which, which is sort of hovers over all our conversations at, at this point, it seems. And I, I wanna talk a, a, about the, the supply chains and, and the, the slave labor side of it, uh, but, but wanna start a, a little bit broader, which is it, it seems like we've kind of run into this problem where all of our assumptions, particularly on, on the right of center, are built kind of on the basis that we're going to have this free market, everyone's going to kind of be a liberal democracy, and, and then it will work. And, and it seems like we've run into a real challenge that's frankly confusing people when the, the folks we're trying to have free trade with are communists, are, are, are an authoritarian communist country. And, and we're seeing these tensions between free trade and free markets on the one hand and, and free speech and, and even free labor uh, on the other. And so um, I, 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 I'm, I'm curious how you've seen that play out in practice, either with in, in the technology context or, or the, the outright slavery context. What happens to, to free market fundamentalists when they realize that that can lead to some pretty ugly things in China? Well, you know, I, I, let's, let's take it from this angle, from a historical angle. I think it's important to realize that the global market and even the nature of, of what, what capitalism looks like in this country and globally, it changes over time. I mean, it's a historical phenomenon. It's not static. You alluded to this in your comments about Adam Smith. I mean, what Adam Smith understood the market to be and how he would have defined the free enterprise system it is he was working from a different set of historical data than we live with today. That's not to say his insights are, are irrelevant. I mean, far from it, but we should just acknowledge that uh, markets and, and the system of capitalism uh, changes over time and there can be better or worse iterations of it and I have to say that the the form of hyper globalist capitalism if you want to call it that that uh, we have seen in since really the 1990s I mean really accelerating beginning in the early 1990s uh, I think has resulted in a lot of problems for this country because as it turns out one of the cornerstones of, of that maybe the cornerstone 
of the 1990s system was this idea that it doesn't matter who you trade with, doesn't matter who you do business with, we'll try to make all the world one market. The nation state is really sort of outmoded and uh, regulation uh, uh, laws passed at the nation state level are impediments to progress uh, rather than guarantors of uh, security or guarantors of values. And so we should try to, to, to uh, minimize the role that the nation state plays. And what's happened is, is that has allowed countries like China in particular, not only to gain access to the international trade system, but, but really to weaponize it. And it has resulted in the loss of, of over 2 million jobs to China since they got permanent normal trade relations and joined the WTO about 20 years ago. It, it has resulted in, in all sorts of tax arbitrage that our companies, our multinationals engage in. I mean, so few of these big corporations pay any taxes in this country. How is it possible? Well, it's because they're taking advantage now of this hyper-globalist system that really came into its own beginning in the 1990s. So I have concerns about this present structure. And the other point I want to make is those are the results of policy choices. That didn't just happen accidentally. They didn't just evolve on their own. They were deliberate policy choices about how we were going to structure trade, how we were going to structure international institutions, how we were going to structure global capital flows. And they represented in the 1990s a deliberate choice by this country and others to actually depart from what had been our standard practice and our basic posture for the previous 50 years. And I think now, given what China has done with the global market, given the results that we're seeing for American workers, we need to ask ourselves, did some of those decisions that American policymakers and others made in the 90s, was that, is that, were those really the right decisions and is this form of, of hyper-globalized multinational capitalism, is that really the best form of uh, the market and free enterprise uh, for the American people? And I think there's some tough questions to be asked there. Yeah, of course, the, the, the benefit that, that we're told we get is, is cheaper stuff. Um, and, right. and I think that there's an interesting connection there to, to the supply chain question and, and even the... Uh, the, the idea of having slave labor in our supply chains, um, you know, there was, uh, you've, you've introduced a bill essentially uh, requiring corporations to make sure there, there is no slavery in their supply chains. Um, talk a little bit about what, what do you see that out there in the world that, that requires such legislation? Are, are American-led companies really oblivious to, don't care, are happy to have slave labor in their supply chains? And, and what is the response to that look like? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think the answer to that question is yes. And again, it's not just any American companies. It's, it's these multinational companies that the ones who are always talking about how socially responsible they are, what good corporate citizens they are. But uh, you take a company like Nike, for instance, multiple reports from multiple different outlets have said that Nike and have reported that Nike relies on the slave labor of Uyghur concentration camps in China to make a series of their products. Now, my view is this, that number one, Nike shouldn't be profiting on such labor in China or anywhere. They should not be profiting on what is literally slave labor, forced involuntary labor. They have an obligation to report, should have an obligation to report what labor they're relying on. And if it's in their supply chains, they should either eradicate it or they should be penalized for it. And I, I do think that one of the tough questions, and it's a systemic question that we ought to pose is, has it been, is one of the reasons it's been so profitable for some of these big multinationals to move jobs overseas out of this country 
and over to other countries is it because in a number of these countries they're really relying on forced labor on slave labor so yeah that labor's cheap i mean they're not getting compensated in any meaningful way and we could talk about nike or we could talk about starbucks we could talk about adidas we could talk about apple and that connection and that's why i've introduced legislation that would require these multinationals to certify that they're not relying on slave labor, and if they are, that they are taking steps to eradicate it or they face penalties. It's, it's really interesting. I, I wanna read you something. Economics professor Tyler Cowen wrote uh, a column, I, I think it was earlier this week, maybe last week, it was very critical of, of, of the bill that you proposed. And, and what he wrote is, he said, a get tough approach has superficial appeal, yet placing an investigative burden on companies may not lead to better outcomes. And in fact, he wrote, the net effect of the bill, contrary to its stated intent, might be to increase slavery worldwide. And his argument was that essentially companies who couldn't certify that something was slave free would just leave markets that, that, that might have slave labor and, and go to ones with shorter transparent supply chains. Uh, and, and, and the result essentially would be to, to make matters worse. And in the process, he emphasized, raise prices for American consumers. Um, what I'm curious about your perspective on, on those kinds of concerns. Or they could just bring jobs back to the United States. Imagine that. I mean, is it so unthinkable that these multinational corporations maybe employ a few more American workers? I mean, I hear all the time these, uh, these corporate CEOs complain about how American workers don't really have the skills they need anymore. They're not really talented. And so we just, we just can't use them. But yet they're willing to pay nothing to people overseas. I mean, I, I, I doubt that they're actually shopping for talent. Uh, when they're in Uyghur concentration camps, what they're doing there is taking advantage of these people, the worst sort of advantage of people who are literally imprisoned. So, you know, listen, I mean, I, I've heard that a lot of economists have argued that, uh, for instance, in the last 20 years, uh, with the onset of this hyper-globalization we've been talking about, that, well, the United States benefits on net. I mean, you know, the net benefits outweigh the net cost. The, the question, though, is, is who benefits precisely? And who, who in the United States benefits? And when you have a system where the benefits are captured by a certain group of people, by a professional class, and they, they, the benefits sort of pool, if you like, in one place, whereas your middle class or working class individual is not seeing benefits, in fact, is seeing historically flat wages, in some cases, cases in industries declining wages, then you have a policy problem. And, you know, is, is it a market problem? Yeah, it probably is. But it's also, it's a policy problem because, again, we've gotten here because of policy choices, very deliberate policy choices. So I would just say that, you know, you can't, there's a qualitative aspect to this, Orin, that we have to ask about, or maybe better, a normative. We've got to ask some normative questions. Is this really the kind of country we want to have? Do we want to have a country where basically if you don't have an advanced degree, you don't have any chance of getting a good paying job and sustaining a family? I mean, do we want to have a country where you can't get decent skills education unless you're willing to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash? Is, is that really the kind of economy and country we want to have? I, I think the American people have been in recent elections, have been trying to send the message that that is not the kind of economy and the kind of country that they want to have. And I think they're right about that. And, and what do you see as the political uh, dynamics? You know, I think it, one reality, at least in the short run, is if, if, if we use well-paid American labor instead of underpaid, potentially not paid at all foreign labor, that, that does suggest things get more expensive. 
that, that people won't be able to buy as much stuff, that, that the flat screen TV won't be as big as it otherwise would have been. Um, and, and that's something in a lot of cases people are going to notice before they notice the, you know, the, the general trends in the economy feeling better. How, how do you think about communicating that? And, and what do you think the, the response or feeling of, of your typical constituent is to, to thinking about that trade-off? I think people know when they have work or not, and when they feel secure in their job or not, and when they feel like they have a future in that job or not. And I think that goes a long way toward uh, their assessment of their economic prospects personally and their economic assessment of how the country is doing. In other words, I mean, if, if prices are increasing dramatically, but they can't get a raise or they can't get a good job, then yeah, they're, they're going to be upset. That's not a sustainable position. Unfortunately, that's a position that we've been in a number of times just in recent decades. But I think if people under, are, are feeling in their own lives, like, you know what, actually, I, I, I get a good job. Maybe I have a choice of jobs and uh, I, I'm getting a raise and I feel like there's a future for me here in this country and that I can, I can, get, I can acquire a skill, I can practice a trade, I can support my family on that. Then I think you'll see people say that, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I've got, I've got the kind of purchasing power I need and uh, that they will feel happy and satisfied with that. So, you know, we've heard from, from economists of a certain sort for many, many years that we cannot question this bargain, this globalization bargain that we, that we, have, to, we have to commit. It's either it's hyper-globalization or nothing. It's, it's the 90s way or nothing. We couldn't possibly go back to some earlier version or craft a different way of doing business globally and internationally. I think that's just false. Our own history proves it's false. We did this differently ourselves in this last century. America had a different basic approach to trade, to global capital flows, uh, than we have in, from, say, the, the late 1940s until the early 1990s, very different from what we have today. So in our own history, we know that there are different ways to approach and to manage the global economy in ways that actually protect and encourage American workers, that actually help American families feel secure. So I just think that that some of what you hear from some quarters of the economics profession, that it's like, oh my gosh, if we make any changes at all, it will be the end. I mean, the market will collapse and prices will skyrocket and inflation will go crazy. And I just think that that is both ahistorical and frankly, a, a, a terrible lack of imagination, which is a bad combination for policymakers. Yeah, I, I, I find myself in those conversations myself. That, that, um, that, that, that rings very true. Um, is we, we have a couple minutes left, so I want to come back to the, the kind of the corporate actual responsibility idea. And, and as we think about these goals and, and values that we have, what is, what is it that we actually want to ask of corporations? Uh, and, and what I'm struck by is that for a very long time, you know, the, the left has been very comfortable asking all sorts of things of corporations. And, and we know the sort of standard progressive set of demands, which, which ironically seems to have nothing to do with actually helping workers or their families in a lot of cases, whereas the rights position has been, well, we, we don't want to demand anything. We, we don't think we should ask corporations to do anything. Um, it, it's, it's interesting and exciting in a sense to think, well, well conservatives can make demands too. And, uh, and, and those might be ones that advance our priorities a lot more effectively. And so as you're thinking about what are the, the most important things you want to demand either as a, and, and we should all demand, either as a cultural matter, this is what it means to be responsible, or this is what Congress is going to tell you you have to do. You know, we've talked about making things in America. Are there other things at the top of your list in terms of how you treat workers or their families, how you relate to local communities that, that you see as, as really most important? 
Well, I think when we talk about writing things into law, I, I would I would start with what we've just been discussing, which is about the, the kind of labor that these multinational corporations use in this country and overseas. And we certainly would never accept them using forced involuntary labor in this country that has been un illegal and indeed unconstitutional now for over a century. Thank goodness. Took us a long time to get there, but thank, thank goodness that that is the law. And we need to expect the same as a baseline for these big multinationals operating overseas. If you consider yourself an American company, if, if you have any tie to this country legally, you should not be profiting on slave labor, particularly not to the detriment of American workers. So I think that that is a, a if you want to start the conversation about responsibility, that's a place to start. And then we can have a discussion beyond that about you know, how, many, how much of your supply chain can you move back to this country? How much can you feasibly afford to put here? We could also talk about the corporations that have the wherewithal. Again, it's probably going to be these big multinationals that have the wherewithal to set up skills training programs in local communities who can actually help their workers or their poor potential workers acquire a skill so that they don't have to go to an expensive college that they don't want to go to in order to get a degree that won't benefit them, but they would like to get a skill. I'd love to see more of these big multinationals rather than complaining about the fact that, oh, American workers just don't have any skills. Well, set up a program to help them get the skills and then recruit out of that pool. That would be tremendous benefit. And they could do that, by the way, in underserved areas, in rural areas, in the urban core. I mean, there are things that, that I think that these corporations can do voluntarily that we should be encouraging them to do that would be a tremendous benefit and, and would be far more significant and have far more impact than the sort of virtue signaling that they routinely perform by contributing this or that uh, to this or that cause or charity or, or, or outfit. So I would say to summarize, Orrin, I'd come back to in the law, let's, let's start now by saying that you can't use forced slave labor. I mean, we surely we can all agree on that. And then let's move on from that to think about how we can encourage them and ask them to actually work for the benefit of local communities, American workers, helping them get to those skills to get good jobs. That seems reasonable to me. Um, the, the last question for you, I, I want to ask you about Teddy Roosevelt, because I know it, it, it must seem like a lifetime ago or, or an entirely different one. You, you wrote a, frankly, excellent scholarly biography of Teddy Roosevelt. You are a, an expert on the man, and he, at the turn of a previous century, faced in some ways parallel challenges of, of extraordinary corporate power and, and in some respects irresponsibility. And, and so I'm curious, to, to what extent do you see analogs between then and now? And, uh, and, and what would Teddy do? Well, I, I think there are very significant, actually, analogs between the, the early progressive period and this one, the turn of the last century. And I, I think there are a couple things from Roosevelt that, that we can learn in a positive sense. And one of them is, is that Roosevelt really understood that concentrations of power are dangerous to democracy, and they're most dangerous to normal, everyday working men and women. Because usually when you have concentrations of power, the people who end up holding the power are the wealthy and the well-connected and the highly educated. I mean, that's typically how it works, in our country at least. That's typically how it works. The people who get left out when you have concentrations of power are everyday working people. And so he was concerned in, in his age about the trusts, about the huge combinations of corporate power, and, and, and in many sense, the trusts, uh, to use that historical term, are back again. And, and we see them. A big tech is a, is a great example of huge, powerful conglomerations. Big tech, probably the most powerful corporations in, in history, 
certainly in the history of this country. And uh, you know, who, who do they really benefit? It's a very small group of people. Uh, it, it's a very, an ever actually decreasing set of people who benefit from the power the tech companies have and who are able to exert that control. So I think number, rule number one or lesson number one is that concentrated power tends to the benefit of the few, of the select, and it tends to work against uh, the everyday working man and woman. And then I think connected to that, Roosevelt had a, had a great expression, which I will paraphrase here. He said that I am for business, but I am for democracy first. And I'm for business as an adjunct to democracy. And I think that's the right attitude, which is that you know, we believe in the free market, but we believe in the free market in, in large part because we think it actually aids freedom. You know, we're for freedom. And freedom means the ability of, of normal, everyday working people to control their own lives and to have a share in their own government and to actually participate and have a say what's going on. So for that reason, we want an economy that helps reward that and where those folks have a chance uh, to, to, to get ahead and where they have a chance to provide for their families and where they have a chance to be heard. So we should, we should think about economic policy that actually reinforces the voice of the working man and woman. And I think we shouldn't be shy about that. Teddy Roosevelt wasn't. And I don't agree, by the way, with all his policies. He had some really bad ideas. And uh, he did some really bad stuff. He was the uh, original progressive. Way, way too, too much concentration of power in government, actually. And we could talk about that at a different time. But I think that while he maybe answered those questions in a way that, that I wouldn't, I think the questions that he posed are really worth hearing again. Well, I, I can't wrap it up any better than that. So uh, thank you for posing those questions and, and pushing forward this discussion uh, in Washington and, uh, and, and for joining us. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic and, and one that we're hoping to do work on and, uh, and, and look forward to, to seeing the work that you continue doing as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the American Compass podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about American Compass and read our work, please visit AmericanCompass.org. Mm-hmm.